Big thanks to this episode's sponsor, InfoCrank Power Meters. Our mission at the Cycling Performance Club podcast is to provide the best, most insightful, and most accurate cycling performance information to you and the greater cycling community. InfoCrank shares this mission with us. Proven to be the world's most accurate power meter and utilized by numerous Olympic and world champions, InfoCrank provides cyclists with a level of precision and peace of mind that is unsurpassed in the industry. For a limited time, InfoCrank is offering our listeners an exclusive 20% discount off the InfoCrank Road and the InfoCrank Track power meters. See the link in the description and use discount code PERFORMANCE20 to get your upgrade into the most accurate power meter on the market. Today, we're going to find out what it takes to win a grand tour. But first, let's start with the race. The 2022 Giro d'Italia, which turned out to be a head-to-head battle between two riders, Ineos Grenadiers Richard Carapaz and Bora Hansgrohe's Jai Hindley. And after 19 of 21 stages, Hindley was in second place, three seconds down on the leader Carapaz. With only two stages left to race, and the last stage being a time trial, it was clear that stage 20 was Hindley's best opportunity to win the race. Hindley had to make a move at some point on stage 20. So that last day when you're you're obviously feeling good during the stage, are you the one that makes the call or does the DS tell uh, Leonard Kamner it was to come back at that point? Are you on the radio saying, yeah, this is the point that I want it to happen? Or are you even like looking at Carapaz at any point during that climb? Or is it literally just that it happened to be that he got caught then? So can you talk us through that last climb, basically? Yeah, but I mean, it starts like even before that. This is Jai Hindley, and while he's talking about the team's strategy for this do-or-die stage, which we'll cover from Jai's perspective later on in the episode, winning the Giro d'Italia was the end result of a long journey. And we're going to go through what it takes to win a Grand Tour. And I'm not talking about the three weeks during the race, but the years, actually decades of work beforehand, from lifestyle to self-belief to training and a lifelong passion for cycling. Today, we dig into Jai Hindley's journey from a six-year-old rider with a dream through to a Grand Tour winner. All right. Welcome to the Cycling Performance Club podcast. podcast where scientists, pro cyclists, and cutting-edge coaches discuss topics in training, performance, science, and all things cycling. The show is co-hosted by me, Cyrus Monk, a professional cyclist and cycling coach. Me, Dr. Jason Boynton, a sports scientist and cycling coach. And then there's me, Damien Roos, a professional cycling coach. The first thing you want to do if you want to be a fast cyclist is make sure you choose your parents right. And and that's kind of like just making the reference to the genetics aspect, right? Like you need good genes in order to do that. But you're actually touching on another part of it is that like you want to have parents that are supportive. Like that's that's it's probably a very overlooked part of this whole thing of like having parents that are going to put that all in there. Your dad. Yeah. He's got like, you know, he goes out and takes his when you're in town you know he's got his weekends he's in, and he goes out and he's driving around on the moped with you in the scooter yeah right i yeah, mean yeah, yeah. that's awesome 
Like, yeah, he just brings the snacks yeah. along or something. I, I don't know, but like, <laughs> imagine like just having a dad that's gonna cruise around with you like all day doing like whatever yeah. like four or five hour rides you guys are doing in the hills. So yeah, man, hundred percent. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, he's really like, yeah, I'm super lucky. He's like, he's like the Michael Jordan of dads. You know, he's like, hmm. <laughs> he, yeah, I couldn't have, I couldn't have been dealt like a better hand to have. Like my parents, they're so supportive, really. And you know, if I if I was back home, yeah, actually, when I was back home and I was amateur and I was doing these bunches, and I'd leave like four thirty in the morning to go to a bunch in the city, he he would motivate me mm-hmm. now, and he would he would be more than happy to do that. You know, I would roll out of bed, put the kid on, go to the kitchen. He'd be there, helmet on, jacket on, ready to go, like more keen than me. Yeah. When you have someone like that, you know, and that person also happens to be your dad, it's like it's really special, really. Yeah, 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 for sure. And it was his dad, Gordon Hindley, a guy with a love of cycling and nearly 20 years of racing experience that introduced Jai to the sport and pretty quickly, out of necessity, ended up coaching him from early on in his riding career after he took over as coach of their local club track program. The thing is... Jai started cycling when he was young, like super young. But yeah, actually, I started cycling when I was super young, like six years old or something. And yeah, it was mainly like the influence of like my dad. So he, you know, basically started with me and my brother, uh, like riding on the weekends and stuff when I was super young. And then... uh, yeah, then that sort of developed over the years. And developed it did. But what are we talking about here? Starting at six and soon seeing the Tour de France on TV, Jai declared from that moment that he didn't want to be anything other than a pro cyclist. Well, he did take a year out to play rugby. But otherwise, the idea was planted from an early age. His dad also gave him some great advice. Like my dad has always told me this, like it's... It's just too hard of a sport to not do it 110%. Simple as that. Yeah, it's not even a sport, man. It's like it's a lifestyle. You dedicate you dedicate everything to this. Whether you whether you want it to be like that or not, like it is ultimately like your whole your whole lifestyle. Now, let's talk about Jai's physiological potential from an early age. And you will be interested to hear that even Jai says that he wasn't, as he puts it, blowing anyone's socks off. It took time to develop, and it wasn't obvious at first. When I was like a young kid, it wasn't uh, like when I went to the state institute to do the testing and everything like that, I was not like blowing anyone's socks off. I'll put it like that, not really impressing anyone. So I think it's really, yeah, you really have to like build your engine per se. Like it's not not like something that just happened overnight. So speaking of like what capabilities you have as a rider, Jason, you actually did some testing with Jai like five years ago now, I think it is. Do you remember that, Jai? Yeah, yeah. It was at ECU <laughs> uh, University, wasn't it, in Joondalup? Yeah, there was yeah. you and another individual there. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know how much I can say. But um, so I would just say that the numbers were very impressive. If I remember right, I've, I honestly went looking for that file and we had switched out the computers. I took all the files off of one of the computers and it wasn't the one. Oh. We didn't test you on the one. So 
Um, but if I remember right, it was mid 80s. So 85 milliliters per kilogram per minute for your VO2 max, something around that. Oh. Um, and I was actually going to ask if you've had the file at all. Oh. <laughs> um, so I could take a look at it a little bit deeper look because all, it's all off of memory right now. And it might have actually been higher because we did, I don't know if you remember or not, we just kind of used one of the AIS's old protocols that was 50 watts every five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. The rev. Yeah. Yeah. And that is not a good way to get a, your absolute, absolute VO2 max, right? It probably would have been higher potentially if we would have put you on a ramp of, you know, 30 watts every minute or something like that. Yeah. Or 50 watts every minute, something. But it was impressive. So to just sit and watch somebody just like kicking it out at like 350 <laughs> watts and just like, yep. I'm like, are you serious? I mean, I'm just watching the watching the steps go up and I was like, man, this this is it. Yeah, these these guys are good. <laughs> man. So that was five years ago, which puts Jai right in the middle of the year riding for Mitchelton Scott, a Chinese UCI Continental Cycling team established in 2017. It was set up as a development team for the World Tour team. And while 2017 was a good year, securing some solid results in a variety of races, performing well when the road went up, 2016 seems to be the year that things started to come together. Off the back of his first trip to Europe when he was 15, he left home at 18 to race for an Italian club team, hunting for under-23 races before racing for the Gusto Continental Cycling Team and the Australian under-23 national team in Europe. And the results from these years helped him secure a three-year contract with the professional cycling team, Team Sunweb, from 2018. But it wasn't an easy transition into the world tour. I, uh, I've obviously known you for a fair while and raced against you as a junior. And the basically, for people that haven't been following you, it's not like you're, you're new on the scene, you're riding for ages, and I'm sure everyone's seen now the photos <laughs> of you as a junior on there. But there's a couple of other guys that were right up there as well that um, would always... Be, be the ones filling the podium. So those were Lucas Hamilton, Michael Storer, and yourself. I remember just about every junior race and then into the under-23s as well, uh, even stuff like the Baby Giro, the under-23 version, you guys were always right up there. So what do you think with with those three, you've sort of gone slightly different paths for people with all pretty big aerobic engines and essentially out of those three you're the one that's now got a grand tour next to your name and obviously those two have had a pretty good progression themselves and yeah lucas has been right up there in some stage races store has been winning stages of grand tours himself so what do you think's been the difference for you to be able to get to that level where you're now winning grand tours oh yeah really hard to say i mean those other two guys like you say uh yeah also really class riders and I've had some really good results over the years, actually. And, yeah, I mean, our pathways were quite similar when we, before we turned pro, we were, we were all in the Aussie under-23 team slash the Jayco AIS sort of team. And, yeah, I mean, then when we turned pro, it was, I mean, for me, I can only speak for me personally, but, it, yeah, it, was, uh, it wasn't like the easiest transition, like, compared to what you see to how, how guys are going now, you know, like 
see you guys going from the under 23 ranks to the pros and then just, you know, running third in their first welter and picking up three stages. And it's like, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have like even considered that. And yeah, I mean, for me anyway, it took, took quite a long time to find my feet and uh, I was actually in a really good team for that. I think, yeah, doing three years in Sunweb and then, yeah, last year was called DSM. It was, uh, for me, it was actually like the perfect environment to, to develop and also to like keep learning. Actually, in a team like that, I learned so much uh, about performance and recovery and also off the bike stuff, you know, just just being a professional in general. And yeah, maybe if I'd gone to a different team, then I wouldn't have, I don't know, experienced all that and 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 learned all, all the stuff that I did. So yeah, I mean, for me, uh, being in that, uh, in that team for four years was actually, it was sort of like still a really great place for me to continue developing because yeah, I wasn't at the level to just roll into the world tour yep. and, and, you know, start going for results off the bat. Like, I mean, I tried to do that, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> to actually do it is another thing. And yeah. Yeah. But just to say to like pinpoint, to pinpoint where where I've differed from, yeah, you know, those other two guys that you spoke about, it's quite hard. And yeah, I mean, yeah, Grand Tour racing is quite special. You know, I think actually for me and like my, I don't know, capabilities, it's actually like the perfect style of racing for me. I'm jumping here to mention that being a GC rider wasn't actually a surprise for Jai's team. And as far back as 2017, when Jai signed his initial three-year contract with Team Sunweb, one of their coaches, Mark Reeve, said that when they signed him, that the team had been tracking Jai since the beginning of 2016 and see a lot of potential for him as a climber and a future GC hopeful. But first, they wanted to provide a race program with gradual build-up in level and difficulty, and he will have time to develop across all different terrains. And that's exactly what they did. I'd done the Vuelta in 2018 as my first Grand Tour, and then I did the Giro in 2019 as my second Grand Tour. And both those races, I was yeah, I was just there as a domestic, and to, to go as deep into the final as I could, uh, which I did, and... Yeah, but I like I felt during those races like I could I could have gone further, you know, I could have been better on GC or something. Um, and it wasn't it wasn't until yeah. yeah we had this altitude camp or two altitude camps before the Giro in twenty twenty, and yeah, the second one I was really feeling good and I was like the best I'd ever felt on the bike, and the the performance team could see that, and I was doing like you know, efforts consistently, easy, day in, day out. And and from that point on, I think they sort of looked at each other or well, everyone looked at, at that and just, you know, then they were like, okay, let's just give this guy an opportunity. And, yeah, in that camp, then I was told, like, okay, you're going you're gonna to have the chance to go for GC. And I was thinking, like, fuck, like, I'm, I, up until that point on – in, in terms of GC results, I didn't really have anything. You know, I was second at Tour of Poland in 2019 and 
I've done some good rides here and there. I'd also that yeah, it was in twenty twenty when I won the Sun Tour, but it's not a it's not a world tour race. And it's very different in in, in the world tour. Mm. And yeah. So to get that opportunity was a bit of a shock to me and also the other guys in the in the team that year. I think everyone was a bit like, oh, what the hell? <laughs> and uh yeah, then then when you actually go to the race you know, you have the pressure and you have the support of the guys and everything like that. And yeah, you really, I, I didn't feel like had all this pressure, but I just felt like I, I owed it to the guys who were helping me day in, day out to, to be there every day. And yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, obviously a lot of that GC three week specialty is, is coming naturally, but, the, I remember training with you in 2018, so I think your Neo Pro year here in Girona, and you just had said that the first half of that Neo Pro year almost you were just amazed with how much low-intensity stuff you were being given and um, you almost seemed like you were frustrated with how easy you were having to roll around compared to the kind of training you'd do for an under-23. And we, we have sort of spoken a little bit uh, with Toon and we've had Peter Leo on as well talking about those sort of uh, how they analyze the intensity required in training and in races. But is this something that you think that low intensity work and just the sheer volume of, of that kind of stuff that you started heaping on once you get a few years down the track, is, is that what you're attributing all these, yeah, all these results now from? Yeah, I would say so. But I think when you, when you go to these races, like, like in this first year I went to, Catalonia and Basque Country, for example, like very climbing specific races. And I was just getting my head kicked in. Like I was having some good days and doing some good rides, but ultimately I was just getting my head kicked in. And yeah, it's it's like the more you the more you have that, the more you you know, you keep suffering in the races. I don't know, I I feel like you just eventually you just adapt to the load and adapt to the intensity. Or, or you don't, and oh, you yeah. don't, <laughs> and then yeah, and then yeah, then you're not winning. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's very much like a sink or swim type situation, and you know, it's not just that; it's also a combination of of, of yeah. the training and the work you do, and everything else you do to help the training. So, like the nutrition, I think for me, probably the biggest one of the biggest keys to my success, like in the past years was actually really just understanding my nutrition because I think for the first two years, I thought I knew what I was doing, but actually I had no idea. And it wasn't until, mm. yeah, my third year on the team where I was really getting my nutrition right. And by that, I mean properly fueling. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's probably, it's a very like, it was a very hot topic in cycling, you know, like nutrition and, and all this, but yeah, I have to say, once I once I got that dialed in, that was like a game changer for me. Mm-hmm. And so, what was the specific differences? Do you think that w- that that was um, going on? Like, what did they change? Like, uh, increasing your intake of carbohydrates, or yeah, what you were consuming? Yeah, basically, just uh, for example, in a Grand Tour. For Sunweb or DSM, we did like, I don't know if Toon spoke about it, but we used to do this 
thing called like personalized plates. It's where they had a, a chef in touch with the dietitian. The whole the whole point of of this was to like come into a race at a certain weight and then like for a grand tour come in at a certain weight and not like gain or lose weight but sort of just maintain with like the fluctuations and and just yeah like just consistently get through the race but be completely fueled every day and then finish the race you know roughly at what you came in Mm -hmm. and yeah the way they did that was yeah they would calculate everything you put in your mouth so everything you ate was weighed the chefs knew exactly what each rider was getting i I would do the stage i would send my full nutrition intake to the dietitian he would then calculate how much i'd burned how much i needed to replace that with and then he would speak with or they would speak with the the chefs and then they would make your dinner or your breakfast according to like what needed to be replaced and yeah for me that was game changing and you know in a week long race you can sort of get away with not doing that but in a three week race if you don't do that you're stupid because <laughs> it's like having a race car but not knowing how much petrol to put in or what <laughs> petrol to put in yeah you know yeah yeah exactly yeah so do you do you still do similar with Bora now or you've you reckon you've learned a lot from that and you can do a lot of it yourself? Do they have a similar program in place? Um yeah. So that that was yeah, for sure one of the biggest things that I learned at Sunweb and and also one of the things that I really wanted to to take to Bora. But uh yeah, fortunately Wilco Kelderman was also in Sunweb and he also moved to Bora and he yeah. sort of took that and was really pushing for it at the team. So, yeah, I was lucky enough to come in and everything was sort of not exactly like how we were doing it at Sunweb, for example, but close enough. And and then, yeah, I could come into the team and that was already yeah. sort of in place. And, and then, yeah, like I said, in in a week race, you know, yeah, it's important, but it's not that you can get away with not doing it. But in the three weeks of racing – especially in the last week, especially in the Giro when the stages are like they are. And, mate, like the amount of yep. food that you have to eat, it's uh, it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I imagine. Yeah. Here's what we've learned so far about what it takes to win a Grand Tour. It takes focus and determination with a clear goal set. Then it takes work and results, a family that helps you and a team that believes enough in you to give you time to develop. The thing we haven't spoken about yet is resilience when faced with setbacks. And if you know anything about Jai's journey, you would know that 2021 wasn't a great year for Jai. We sort of want to get, go into the, the preparation for this Giro. But before that, there's obviously like a pretty big thing in between your 2020 Giro yeah. and your 2022 Giro, which is last year. So we can just touch on quickly, like what happened there? Obviously, there's still results that anyone would be, well, 99.9% of people would be, they'd be the biggest results in their life. But I'm sure it was a year that you would have preferred to get more out of. So 
we can just touch on like what what you think happened that made life different when you were training so that you weren't able to produce those same results and then yeah we'll go into from there how it's changed again to be able to get back to the top this year yeah sure yeah i mean yeah i mean uh there was a lot going on i finished 2020 on like such a high because the the duo was really like the last race of that season and then i went into 2021 with you know super high expectations of myself and not so much like pressure off the team, like for sure they were keen to, you know, see what I could do that year. And they they were like completely supporting me, but just more so the pressure off myself to to be back at that level. And, you know, I had so many people, you know, just all these turkeys like, oh, you know, the level in 2020 wasn't high, there was no one there, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, Okay, for sure the depth wasn't there with the field, but yeah, yeah, the numbers that I was pushing there were probably better than probably better numbers than uh, this year. For mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know it's like it's really frustrating when it's like that. I mean, I I'm not like doing it. I'm not doing all this for anyone else, but yeah, you know when when you finish on a on a ground tour podium, it's like massive, and then these people are like ah. Oh, yeah, but no one was there. Oh, like level was shit. And it's like, yeah. man. So why don't you come on and do it, mate? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and uh, so yeah. I mean, more than anything, I just wanted to prove to myself that I could be at that level because it was, yeah, it was like the highest level that I'd ridden at, and I was super motivated to be there again. And uh, yeah, I mean, just yeah. the way that things worked out, it just wasn't wasn't a year i had pretty much had no injury or major illness for most of my cycling career and then all of a sudden it's just like dominoes you know i'm just getting hit with like one thing after another and it was just brutal man and that in combination with with uh with the off the bike you know like yeah it was yeah like because i come from perth we had super strict yeah. Uh, restrictions there like I basically couldn't get home I had mm-hmm. flights just getting knocked back flights getting cancelled so you know I was really just gone through the shit on the bike and then you also can't see your family for for years and it's like man yep. <laughs> this is brutal and then you know uh, just got out of that yeah. there's so many things going on there like my yeah. my granddad also passed away and it's like I'm watching my granddad's funeral on a, on a laptop, you know. It's like yeah, bullshit. Um, Had that happen too. But yeah, I mean, I'm banging on about all this. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm banging on yeah. about all this, but for sure, you know, there's like bigger things going on in the world. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's just it just made it very hard, and uh, yeah, you know. On the bike, it was also just frustrating. Yeah, I spoke about this with Jimmy Wheel and last night. He's been on the podcast before as well, and he's he's just been hit by a car in Andorra, and he's he's back in Girona now. But we both just said how much people take for granted how mm. rare it is that you get a three month block without getting sick or injured. So, and then when that when that happens is when yeah. you have to make the most of it because it doesn't come around all the time. So. And this is even more for the people at home, like 
when, yeah, you not even bike-related stuff, other stuff comes up, work stuff, family stuff that get in the way of your training. So when you get that three-month uninterrupted block, it's amazing what it can do for you. And then, yeah, obviously if it strings into into six months. So talking about like obviously the last three months into this year, I'm assuming a lot of things managed to fall into place pretty well compared to last year. So if we start getting towards basically talking about from that when you started your preparation for this giro obviously the confidence is probably not as as high as you'd like it to have been or were you still really strong in that belief in yourself that coming into this giro you'd be able to go one better than the last one i mean i think i think the the belief has always been there i think you have to if you don't have that like self-confidence and that self-belief then you'll never get it done maybe like yeah, maybe I'm really, uh, I don't know, humble and whatever to everyone else, but in my own mind, like, really arrogant, <laughs> you know? Yeah, uh, and we, we've we've talked about this before, yeah. Yeah, you just need that. You just need that self-belief and that self-confidence that, like, yeah, I was just thinking, okay, like, I just had a shit-ass year, but I can be at that level still. And if you... If you're not thinking like that, then it's never going to happen. So 2021 was riddled with problems and Jai never fully got to reach his best in any races. And then came a change of teams after four years with the same team. Going on to working with Bora this year, obviously it's a big change in staff from directors and nutritionists, dietitians, that kind of stuff, chefs, but... The big one is like the performance team and they're the ones that are basically deciding how you train and and do everything around that training. So what's been the biggest changes from going from DSM to Bora this year? It's been a bit different, but uh, I really have to say I was working with Dio. I think I saw you guys had him on the podcast. But I was working with Dio Sanders for two years and, yep. yeah, uh, he was coaching me in 2020 and all of uh, 2021 and he was really good. Like, as a trainer, he was, like, really top-notch, you know, I have to say. Like, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, 100%. Yep. And, he, uh, he knows sure the stuff. He was, sure he was a big <laughs> he reason knows the stuff. Yeah, why I could get to that level that I was in 2020. And, uh, I mean, that was really nice, but it was also in 2021 when I was having all this shit going on, you know, he was a really good guy to – to have in my corner to to keep backing me after after all the setbacks and all the shit, you know. I would phone him up, be pretty stressed, like, oh, man, we've got this race coming up. I haven't been able to ride because I've been sick for four days, like, and he would, like, calm me down and just be like, man, like, you've done all the work, like, just, just get healthy and then get into the race and whatever happens, happens type vibe. You know, he was, I have to say he was, like, massive and uh i really enjoyed working with him actually he was a really good coach um and and then yeah i guess moving yeah, to yeah. bora i was i was actually uh paired up with a german guy called hendrik werner i don't know if either of you guys know him but he actually used to be in in sunweb for a couple of years the first two years i was there and i i actually my first memory of hendrik was like at the the team piss up in 2017 before I actually joined Sunweb and that was just this like you know crazy cool looking guy who was just absolutely sourced and I remember we just hit it off like from the get-go you know and 
yeah, he left he left the team uh, at the end of 2019, I think. And yeah, when I moved to Bora, uh, they just paired us up together because I think you know we'd worked we'd worked together. Well, we didn't work together, but he was in Sunweb, so I knew him and he knew me. And uh, actually, I was really happy that they paired us up. I didn't I didn't ask or anything like that. They just put it together, and uh, yeah, I've been with him you know the whole time and he's also yeah phenomenal phenomenal coach you know he's this guy really knows his stuff and he also really understands like the mental side as well which i think is massive like you know he sets he sets the training and you know, if he says like you've got four hours tomorrow full gas efforts and i wake up and i'm just like mentally dumb and you know i can't ride my bike for four hours and i send him a message like mate I'm not, I'm not doing, I'm not going, I'm not doing four hours. I'm not doing it. Like, I'm not up for it. He would just be like, hey, Mike, no problem. <laughs> uh, you know, he's very much like a guy who, he doesn't push anything on you. It's it's all coming from you, like, but at the same time, he's very much there to facilitate that. And, yeah, working with him has been really nice. And, uh, yeah, he's, like I said, he's a really cool guy and, He's a really switched on coach as well. So, I mean, to be yeah, to be honest, I don't think I've had a bad coach since I've turned pro, which is which has been really fortunate. And I've yeah, I've been lucky enough to work with some really good coaches uh, the whole time at Sunweb and and also at Bora. But I think the biggest difference would just be, I think everything's just a bit more relaxed at Bora. To be honest, like uh, you know, if I if I for example at the start of the season I was you know, I had three, four-hour rides lined up in a row and I did like five and a half hours instead of four and then six because I felt like going longer and then, you know, five, uh, five and a half on the last day again just because I was enjoying it and the weather was good. Like, it was, yeah, Bora, it's really like, okay, like he's motivated, he can do whatever he wants. And I think there the mentality is like a lot comes from the athlete, like, they they do everything to help you and to set you up and and to you know put put you in the right direction. But ultimately, it all comes from mm-hmm. the rider, and I think that's that's like a really maybe it doesn't work for everyone, but I, for me, it's like a really good environment to be in. This is this is probably a tough question, um, but is that something that you think would have worked for you when you turned pro, when you're a neo pro, if you went into an environment like that, yeah, would it yeah. have been as successful? Yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting one. Like I said, like I turned pro and uh, you know I thought I knew a lot. I thought I knew a lot about training and diet and everything, but actually I didn't. And I learned so much of this, like at Sunweb, like these yeah. four years, I learned really a lot. And yeah, I think actually, like yeah, for the first four years of being pro, it was good, really good for me to have that like structure and that like, I don't know, stricter regime or something. It wasn't like a regime, but just more structure and more like set in stone type coaching as opposed to like more freedom and just flexibility, I guess. But yeah, like I'm not knocking either, either team's uh, training methods, you know, like both, worked for me and and yeah i learned i'm yeah. learning a lot all the time so yeah so with your coach there is he coaching other riders 
as well. Sorry, Jason, I just brought it in. But is he coaching um, other riders within the team? And what's the structure look like in terms of coaches to rider ratio there? Uh, yeah, I think that is quite similar with with my old team. Like like in in my old team, all the riders were coached by coaches within the team and every coach had, you know, I don't know, five to seven or eight guys even. And, uh, yeah, it's actually quite similar in Bora. Everyone in the yeah. team is, is, is coached by someone in the team. And I think I think nowadays in, in the World Tour, it's, it's yeah, I don't know, I think you need to have it like that because everyone knows what's going on all the, on all, all the time. Like if one guy is absolutely flying, all everyone knows about yeah. it. Or if one guy is like, you know, he's been sick or he's been injured and he's just coming back, everyone knows about it. Like everyone's like in the loop. And but I think both teams do that pretty well. Now let's talk about Jai's training for a bit. And we just spoke about the team. And of course, it's the team that is driving the training. So whatever Jai is doing would have to be common across the organization. But that's just a guess. I will say that there are a few surprises, not around what they're doing, but around what they aren't doing. Peter Leo, who, who's our guest, that his episode will probably come out after yours. So we've, we've just chatted with him, but he's he's pretty into durability and fatigue resistance. And it's also something we talked about with Luke Plapp. So it's something he's really trying to work on because he's got that huge raw power, but now he's trying to be able to put it out at the end of a race, well, the end of a stage, let alone the end of three weeks, like you've been able to. So is it something that you do specifically train with your coach? Like is he telling you to, for example, do the efforts at the the end of one of those four or five-hour days? Um, and is there anything that he's using to kind of quantify it or record it to see how your fatigue resistance is going while you're doing that training? Oh, yeah, I mean... Uh, normally with the efforts it's not like it's not really set in stone actually and when I do it and sometimes I just yeah I do I do it whenever I, I want basically it would be at like right at the start of the ride halfway through or yeah at the end so I think it's good to just especially with training you know to just really mix it up not get too complacent and uh yeah uh, and then with the load, I mean, uh, I mean, yeah, it's not. I don't think we do anything too specific with that, or like, yeah, in terms of measuring it, nothing too special, to be honest. So, you know, actually, just like most guys, I do quite a lot of uh, big hours at the start of the season, you know, in January and February, and then, uh, and then, yeah, build everything up. But I. Uh, when I go to altitude camps, normally, normally the load there is pretty solid. Like especially in the last week when I've yeah yeah completely adapted to the the altitude, then then it's yeah really hard training. Yeah, yeah. I think the number that Peter gave me uh, when he texted me this question was uh, three thousand kilojoules of work. Basically, how you perform after three thousand kilojoules of work. So these are the, these yeah, are the yeah, kind yeah. of analyses. Yeah, are you doing that kind of thing, like efforts after kilojoule output jacks? I know some guys are concentrating on that, 
um, when they for when they do their efforts and sort of analyzing that. Yeah, no, not at all. No, it's uh, <laughs> it's just like uh, the, the the training program there of like you know set amount of hours and then the efforts underneath and then and then yeah I can do do you know the set hours and the set efforts yeah. or you know yeah I mean I'm not gonna lie pretty much every time I do it but uh, yeah. yeah like. I wouldn't say we're doing anything too crazy, you know. It's just like it's just the the efforts I get set, I do, and yeah. you know, I I also I think like the communication between the rider and the coach is like massive. Like I'm not every day, but most days sending like a voice message or a text message to to Hendrik to say like, yeah, man, like felt really good, or man, felt shit ass, or like. You know, or I think we need to work on this a bit more. Or the thing about Hendrik is, he's just like such a he's such a good guy to just have a chat with, regardless of training. You know, like it, I know if I phone him up, then then mm-hmm. yeah, we're gonna have like a good yarn about you know whatever plus training. So it's like it's just it's it, to me it's like a really good relationship. And uh, but yeah, back to the question, I nothing crazy specific and nothing yeah. crazy special just just hard training yeah. man really <laughs> yep just consistency um so what you're doing in the gym and what your exercises are for that and how often are you doing the gym work are you at all or oh mate can you not tell from my arms that i'm oh, yeah I, I mean i was i was gonna i was gonna ask i mean that's what where the question is coming from i mean i mean <laughs> No, no. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. Oh, mate. Oh, yeah, I mean, you had to lift oh, that yeah. trophy. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, like, I'd, uh, actually, in the gym, probably nothing. But like, core stuff, uh, especially in the off season, and yeah, while I was at this altitude camp, or like, you know, when I have a when I have a period where I can, where I have a good uh, amount of time for a good training block, then yeah, then quite quite a lot of core stuff, but also nothing too crazy. I think it's I think when the racing season kicks off, it's quite hard to um, it's quite hard to like manage that, you know, because if you don't if you don't do it for a while, then you get doms and and that I really hate. And actually, I think it just ruins my yeah. training quality in the end so yeah to be honest not not a whole lot in the gym and mm-hmm. just a lot of core stuff whenever i have whenever i have uh, a good a good block to do it just off the back of that you're sprinting really well at those mountaintops like obviously a mountaintop sprint is completely different in bora <laughs> but were you doing much sprint were you doing much sprint um prep for the giro like yeah the, they're not they're not bunch sprints by any means, but like Carapaz is known for having a really good punch at the end of those races, yeah. And you're able to tail him up a few times there. So was there work that went into that, or you were purely just the one with the most left at the top? Uh, maybe a bit of both. Yeah, like um, I don't know. I have, I I do normally do like some sprints most days in training, but nothing like you know, racing guys to town signs, stuff like that, you know, real special stuff. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, not yeah. like, not like anything too crazy, but, uh, 
yeah, I don't know. Just most days I'll do some sprints to finish off or something, but uh, nothing too specific to be honest. I was actually, yeah, I was actually surprised myself that I was getting him in some of those sprints because yeah, he does have a really good kick. What kind of watts are we talking for those? Oh, mate, definitely sub one thousand. <laughs> <laughs> Very rare I get over the the big K, like. <laughs> um, yeah, but. I think, I think, yeah, it's a combination of just the hard day of racing and what you've got left in the legs. But also, uh, tactically, I think I did a lot of those sprints pretty well. Yeah. Uh, and I tried not to do the same thing every time, you know. And yeah. But, yeah, it, it also makes a big difference uh, mentally when, yeah, when there are, like, time bonuses on the line as opposed to just sprinting for uh, 10th place, you know. So yeah. when when I knew it was when I knew there was nothing to gain, then I just you know I was on his wheel, but I wasn't I wasn't dying to get round him or something, you know. But when it was yeah, when there were time bonuses on the line, then then yeah, I was really like really keen to do a good sprint. This is something Cyrus raised after the interview. And these are Cyrus's words, seeing that Jai doesn't do strength training in the gym or pre-fatigued efforts is a good reminder that you don't have to strive to include every single intervention into your training. It's also a wake-up call to the big proponents of both interventions that not all the best guys are on board, despite what they may try to convince everyone. Now we get to 2022 and the build-up to the Giro. The lead in to the race, I actually had a very clean, like very problem-free lead in until, oh, I think it was until Liège. So actually the season started off pretty slow. Like I started with some Spanish one-day races, which was, yeah, it was just nice to get some racing in with the team. Form was like not too shabby, but nothing great. And then I went to UAE and, yeah, I was going all right there, but also nothing too crazy. But was it was a bit better than how I was in Spain, for example. So it was like always a upward trajectory, and everything was always getting better and better each race. And I actually didn't do a I didn't do an altitude camp until after straight after Catalan. So I was yeah, like feeling pretty decent. Like I had this fifth fifth overall at Torino and you know I didn't go to altitude before so I was thinking like okay like it's not too bad if I go to altitude get a good block in stay healthy stay like injury free keep the saddle sore thing you know going good then then yeah if I can get through this altitude camp get that under the belt and then do these Ardennes one day races like I was down for flesh Milan and and liaise before the duo, then yeah, then it should be good if I manage the load well. And yeah, actually it went all all fine until until uh, the night before Liège. I like was in bed and uh, I think I woke up at like five a.m. after some yeah really just shit, really just like a shit night's sleep. And I was there at 5 a.m. just like tossing and turning and then I could feel like hot and cold shivers coming on and then 
yeah and then I, I knew that was it you know and then I messaged the doc and said like yeah 5am like can I come do a COVID test because I feel terrible and then yeah I went and did tests they were all negative and then yeah then I really had full gas fever and then uh, stayed the whole day in the hotel and 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 went back home and yeah I was like man down for I don't know three days or something but I was really fortunate that uh yeah I got really healthy quickly after that I did, turns out it wasn't COVID it was just like I don't know some virus and yeah I could start training really easily but not easily easy again after three days and then I just really built it up slowly again and this was this was a week and a half until the start of the Giro so I'm like shitting my pants and the team was also you know the team is also super worried because we had three leaders and then uh all of a sudden all three guys had issues going on like Bookman was sick after Basque Country he was really really unwell uh Wilco crashed full gas in that big crash in Liège and really banged up his knee. And then, yeah, I didn't even start Leo's because of this fever. So we, we went from having like three leaders to like no one and no like backup options. <laughs> so the team is like, you can imagine how, how that would go. You know, you'd just be stressing out the management, yeah. I guess were pretty stressed, but yeah, they kept it cool. And, and then, yeah, I went back home. I had, three days completely off the bike and then I could slowly build it up again. And then I had one day, a couple of days before I flew to Hungary for the start of the race where I just went all out with these efforts just to really test the body again. And actually I was pretty surprised, but I felt pretty good. What efforts were those ones? Like what kind of sessions are you doing just before the race? This, this was just like a whole range of uh, different uh, – you get the exact session. Yeah, that'd be cool. Want. It wasn't like it wasn't meant to be full gas, but I felt good. <laughs> so you just ripped it, and I really like pushed it. Yeah. You know, it was, it was, yeah, it was like I don't know, six minute, two by six minutes of uh, I don't know, forty twenties at X amount of watts, but I was doing way more. And then it was like uh, you know, some sprints, some some other like I don't know, just two by eight minutes or something yep. pretty solid and just like ripped it. So I was thinking like, okay, maybe I can actually salvage this. Like, but at the same time, I was really just worried about the first week because there were some hard stages. There was a lot of travel. Uh, Etna was stage four already. So I was thinking like, if I can just like, I knew I was going to be, not feeling super great in the first week and I knew if I could just get through Etna without losing uh, major time or something, then maybe I could turn around because I know from all previous grand tours that I've done the third week, I really like come into my own and uh, I can, yeah, I really, I don't know what it is, but like, yeah, the third week I always feel not, not good because I'm fucked from racing for two weeks already, but uh, I just hold my yeah, own, I guess. Yeah. And You're less shitty than the other riders. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's one way of putting it, yeah. 
This is where we take a slight detour. And here are a couple of lessons everyone can take away from life at a Grand Tour. Because things that are important for performance during a Grand Tour are also some basics we can control and can impact our own performances. Actually, I did. I mean, we touched on nutrition and we touched on the the racing itself, but like how much are you sleeping during the GC? Yeah, I mean, the sleep is like probably one of the biggest parts of the recovery, I have to say. And uh yeah you really have to work to to get as much sleep as you can and often for me like in the in the last week when i'm like really tired actually that's when i struggle to get like the sleep that i need and yeah it's it's frustrating you know like when you when your legs are like throbbing and mm-hmm. you're you know you're just exhausted and then you you lay down in bed and then you can't sleep it's like yeah but uh you really yeah you have to maximize everything do you have a specific like sleep hygiene routine uh not really but yeah it's just you know i have like my own pillow there from the team but apart from that it's just you know get the head down and get as much sleep as you can day in day out and yeah i think uh when you yeah when you you add it up 21 days of sleep you know if you're getting an extra hour every night, then it's yeah, it's almost an extra day of sleep in the end. And that's that's why, yeah, that's just like Grand Tour racing. It's very like calculated and, and you need to maximize everything. Every small mm-hmm. detail over 21 days adds up. And yeah, whether it's, you know, getting an extra hour of sleep or taking the car back to the hotel instead of the bus because it's going to be an hour faster and then you can get on the massage table quicker and have your dinner faster then then go to bed faster like you do that you know multiple times and everything adds up yeah for sure yeah yeah for sure um cell phone and stuff like that like do you have any like keep stay off the cell phone Uh, routines like that keep keep focused yeah that's also quite hard you know because because I really, you know, the people in my inner circle, I always try and keep in touch with and vice versa. You know, they're always sending support and, uh, yeah, the people who are, who are really there day in, day out, when they're getting in touch, then, yeah, I really try and get back to them when I can. But, yeah, you know, if you have yes. old or something and your phone blows up, then it's, it's pretty full on. And then, yeah, also mm-hmm. after the race, it was just, it's just crazy, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I don't turn it off or anything like that, but I just, just, yeah, I don't know. I try to focus on the, the, the people who are, you know, the really important people who are trying to get in touch and, and yeah. But at the same time, I, you know, when, when you are getting all these messages, it is super nice, I have to say. Now we get back to that third week. So with that third week, knowing that that's your your place where you're going the best compared to everyone else, with your race strategy, obviously you can't plan to win GC on the last day before the tour starts. But as the tour is shaping up, um, is that something, that stage, something like that you picked out, say, from the blockhouse stage that you were, you were going to try and just hold on till then and wait until that point? Or was it literally just the first day that you actually felt like you could drop him? So how much of it was planning and how much of that is just being able to adjust to the situation and just realize that that was the best time to go? 
yeah, it was all adjusting to the situation, really. Because yeah, you can look at you can look at the roadbook and yeah, you can say, okay, this is going to be the key stage. I'm going to not do anything until this stage, and then rip it up. But yeah, it just doesn't work like that. You know, you're always going to have these random days where it's unexpectedly super hard and where you use a lot of energy, and then you're going to have some days where you think it should be a real GC day, and it turns out to be mm-hmm. nothing crazy. It's just yep. the beauty of Grand Tour racing, you know, you really have to expect the unexpected every day. And, uh, yeah, I mean, in this last week, I, I was, I knew I was, I knew I was going good because yeah, every, every time it was like a hard final or an uphill final. Yeah. I wasn't getting dropped and I, you know, I was hurting and I was suffering, but it wasn't like I was, completely exploding or something like that and yeah i think i think the most frustrating thing was uh i actually felt like i had the legs to win it but i felt like i was running out of stages to make a difference if you know what i mean because there were these there were some bloody hard stages but the finishes were maybe not the hardest climbs and yeah, yeah, it was getting really frustrating, you know, because I'm thinking like, shit, man, I'm running out of days here to do anything. I'm like, yeah, it wasn't like I didn't try anything. Like I really tried to get rid of Carapaz. Yeah, I knew he was going to be yeah. the, the 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 man to beat. And from the outside looking in, um, and listening to some of the commentary that that I've heard about the race and how you handled it, it was very like, oh, he's doing a very good job of conserving himself and he waited for that one time you basically it looked like you were keep trying to keep your powder dry as much as possible and racing is smart and not putting in big hard efforts and that type of stuff and but like that's not i'm gonna that's not what i'm hearing from you right now yeah what i'm hearing from you right now you're like i really just want to throw down on these guys and i'm running out of time to do it <laughs> as opposed to like i was trying to be very very conservative about my energy and and i actually started thinking about with the sickness well, I wonder if that was playing on your head a little bit and actually you probably felt okay, but having it was playing in your head and you're just like, oh, I'm just going to chill out even more during the yeah. first few stages. I mean, what do you think about that? Is it a combination or yeah, I mean, like, were you racing as smart as the people outside were? Um, I mean, obviously you're going to, you're a pro, so you're going to race smart, yeah. right? But, um, but yeah, I mean, for me, especially in Grand Tours, like I can't, I can't be that guy that just, you know, attacks when he wants, like 50k from the finish and blows everyone out the water. Like I just, physically, I just, I'm like, I would love to do that. I would love for the fans to be able to like see me do that, but it's just, I just can't do that. You know, like I have to race really smart, and I have to, you know, like you say, keep my powder dry really until the right moments, but. Where I am feeling good and I can do something, um, and yeah, I, for me, I just have to be as calculated as possible. Did you hear that? Jai just said that his win in the Giro was the result of a calculated effort. In order to execute this kind of calculation, there's no doubt in my mind that you need an accurate perception of reality, both in real time and after the fact, and this undoubtedly comes from years of experience and learning how to judge one's own abilities and efforts. But there is also something that needs to be said about the accuracy of devices like heart rate monitors and power meters used by these athletes. For example, 
Imagine how different the outcome of a long grand tour would be if a GC contender and their performance team were receiving inaccurate power data from their devices. Not only could that affect the rider's pacing strategy and the conclusions made from post hoc performance analysis by the staff, but as discussed in this episode, it could potentially also affect the calculations made by nutritionists to determine this amount of calories consumed by the rider during a stage. Simply put, accuracy of devices like the power meter you use are massively important. But unfortunately, too often this simple truth is overlooked and undervalued. And this brings us to this episode's sponsor, the InfoCrank Power Meter from Verge. The InfoCrank has been proven to be the world's most accurate power meter. It has been the go-to power meter for numerous national governing bodies, high-performance units, and Olympic and world champions for years. In other words, organizations and individuals who understand the importance of an accurate power meter trust InfoCrank. The InfoCrank is able to achieve its high level of accuracy because it's a power meter like no other. It measures torque intensity from directly within the crank arms to actually calculate rider power output. This contrasts with other power meters that measure multiple forces and use algorithms to estimate power output. The InfoCrank's crank arm design and strain gauge placement fully isolates and measures the forces propelling you forward. By taking measurements from within the crank arms in this way, InfoCrank can provide accurate and comparable results in all conditions, regardless of the temperature, surface, gradient, or any other variables known to affect other power meters. This also means, unlike other power meters, you do not have to continually remember to recalibrate and re-zero the InfoCrank to assure its accuracy. Not convinced yet? Think about it like this. With all the variables that can affect your performance outcome on any given day, your sleep, your nutrition, your motivation, environmental conditions, on top of all of those, do you really want to have to also consider the possibility of a wonky power meter reading when you really don't have to? To that, I would say no. With InfoCrank's exclusive 20% discount off the InfoCrank Road and the InfoCrank Track power meters for our listeners, there's no better time to get away from your wonky power meter purgatory and into the trusted and accurate experience of an InfoCrank. See the link in the description and use discount code PERFORMANCE20, that's PERFORMANCE20, to get your upgrade to the most accurate power meter on the market. And with that, let's get back into it. Yeah, we, we actually did do that. As a team, we did it like really pretty well, I would say. Um, but it wasn't, I wasn't saying, you know, on the, in the meetings, like, shit, guys, we need to fucking do something today because we're running out of days. Like, <laughs> I was, that was all going on in my head. And I was like, yeah, it was getting pretty stressful for me. But um, yeah, actually, as a team, everyone stayed pretty calm, pretty cool. And, yeah, like I said, everyone rode pretty calculated. We didn't, we didn't really do anything that we didn't need to do, uh, and we, yeah, we really, when the opportunity came or we we could make the opportunity happen, then we we did it with both hands. And I think we did it pretty well. Then I started looking at this at this last stage, and I'm thinking like, yeah, I'm looking at the last five k of that Marmolada climb, and it's like savage and. It's also the second last day, so in my mind, mm-hmm. that's yeah. that's going to be the day. Yeah. And also the climbs that we did before, 
were also really hard. Yeah. And yeah, like I said, I was getting pretty frustrated. And yeah, then even on this, I think it was stage 19, I, yeah, I started to panic a bit, you know, like we, we had the plan on the bus to not ride, not, you know, do anything. We were just going to play off the other teams. And then, yeah, we actually, the guys on the road, we made a call to, to ride that day, even though the DS has said not to. And the break was up the road and we were never going to get it. But in my mind, I'm thinking like, man, I'm running out of time and it's getting, you know, I was starting to get stressed. Um, and then, yeah, the guys rode the front all day, but in the end it wasn't, it wasn't a, yeah, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't for anything. And then I think, but I think in hindsight, we actually needed a day like that to just, yeah. Yeah. you know, I mean, it's not like we got a roasting in the bus or something, but everyone just like stepped back and, and looked at what we did and reassessed the situation. And, and then, yeah. And then we went into stage 20 and, and then, yeah, like I said, that was the day that, you know, it was either going to happen or not. So. And here we are. The final day, well, the second last day, back to stage 20. The last day to try and do something. And of course, Jai wasn't letting out the team's plan. Can you pinpoint us the, the place when you will attack today? <laughs> <laughs> no, man, I'm not going to tell you. But the team did have a plan. And at the meeting in the bus in the morning of stage 20, the plan was clear. Up on the TV is written race strategy with the objective to play smart the last six kilometres to the finish, let Lander do the first one, then smash him and Carapaz. No Ineos in the break. Emu and Wilco with Jai use the last kilometres to make the difference, and the goal is just to fucking fight for it. But Jai wasn't ready. Well, physically at least. I would say everyone is pretty equal physically. It's really like mentally at that point in the game. Like, okay, maybe you're on a... Maybe on a really good day or something, but yeah, that day I was not feeling great. But I knew that final climb was, yeah, if I wanted to win the race, and that's it had to be on that final climb, like simple as that. And yeah, Lenny was up the road, which was, you know, it was a luxury to have him there. And yeah, we came onto that. I think I think during the stage, Gasper or one of the DSs asked me like, uh, "How are you feeling?" and I. You know, I'm not going to say, like, I'm feeling like shit. My legs are like bricks. Like, I just said, like, yeah, man, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> I'm feeling good. And, and yeah. yeah. And then with that, then I'm pretty sure he spoke to, they spoke to Lenny and told him, like, we have to try something on the last time. And, yeah, the plan from then on was Lenny to just get as far up the last climb with as much energy as he could. And then I was going to have to try something and, and bridge across or, yeah, we just had to try something, basically. But here we've got Kemner really pushing on the pace here and it looks like Carapaz is struggling a bit. When Lenny dropped back, I, did, I said nothing in the radio and I said nothing to him out loud either. He just, he dropped back. He looked, for me, coming. I was coming up pretty quick and then... Yeah, as soon as I was on the back wheel, we just jammed it full gas. I said nothing. The DS has said nothing. <laughs> like, no, nothing. No, <laughs> I made no communication with him at all. 
that's to me that was like <laughs> do you give him a look or well, i guess can't even see a look because you're wearing sunnies so. yeah that was like beautiful that was like poetry in motion like i i also said to him after like because we were rooming together and we were talking about it that night and i was just like bro <laughs> like that was just next level you know and yeah yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> Canapaz has dropped. Leonard Kemner's made the move. Canapaz has dropped. Jai Hindley's in the driving seat to win this Giro d'Italia. And look at that. Jai Hindley has finally made the killer blow. Jai Hindley now has a gap. Kemner's done. Hindley carries on. Canapaz has dropped. When I attacked, I don't even really remember attacking. It was just like on autopilot. I just knew, like. I've got to do something and it's got to be all out mm -hmm. if, I'm, if I'm going to crack Old Bay. And yeah, and then, man, it's actually yeah. incredible. Is Hanley making the move to win the Trofeo Sinsafina? The Australian has a gap. The Australian's moving away. It looks like Jai Hindley's making his way towards Verona. It looks like a Romeo and Juliet story between Jai Hindley and the Trofeo. So, so my question for you, Jai, is, is during the race, you weren't feeling great but how did you feel when the actually when you had to do the climb when you actually put in the attack so how did you actually feel then yeah uh man like you just have so much adrenaline going it's unbelievable like yeah you know because when you're really when you're really like racing for the win in that situation it's like you know i get goosebumps just thinking about it because you have the the whole duo on the line at that point and yeah on top of that you've also got like these people on the side of the road just screaming full noise you can't hear yourself think you can't hear anything in the radio it's really like something that yeah, you you, can, you don't you don't know how it is until until you really like experience it in a race yourself it's like an indescribable feeling and even though you're completely exhausted mentally and physically when you when you have to go there you, like it's, it's almost like instinct i guess yeah actually it was perfect you know lenny was up the road in the breakaway and he really he couldn't have timed it better to drop back and give me a a boost up the road and uh yeah, when I heard Carapaz was dropping the wheel, I just went all out, you know. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was an epic stage. Going into this stage, Jai was down by three seconds in the battle for the win. He ended up with one minute and 25 seconds after this attack and ended up finishing the race with a lead of one minute and 18 seconds after the time trial and the final stage the following day after Carapaz took back seven seconds. So the attack on stage 20 was where the race was won. How many days after do you reckon it took for you to recover more from the mental side? Just to be like, all right, now I feel like I'm actually a normal person again from not having to concentrate every day, not having to be up at a certain certain time to be out there on your bike and in the stage. Like like once the once the race had finished, you mean? Yeah, yeah. How many days until you're back to feeling normal again after the race? Yeah, I don't know. It's really... I don't know. Like, I went and, yeah, I had this holiday in Italy for like, I don't know, just over a week where I didn't touch the bike, but it's, 
it's so much more than just the mental focus of racing and the physical focus. Like it's also just eating, you know, like really in that last week, just eating the amount of food that I had to eat was really a challenge. Like you really just lose all, uh, passion in, in food, you know, like I was just keen <laughs> to finish the race. So I didn't have to eat like a mountain of pasta for, for dinner yeah. or rice or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, when the racing stops and you know, you just don't, you don't have to wake up at a set time and go ride, you know, four and a half hours with, you know, 150 other guys. Like you can just, you can just relax that it's, yeah. And it's, it's really weird actually. When you, when you, you're in this bubble for like three weeks and then all of a sudden you stop and yeah, it, it takes it really it takes like some days to get to adjust to it again to being like a normal person and yeah you know having to do your own washing having to you know fix your own punctures or whatever like <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> being equal team genes support talent work ethic technology two lines Jaya said stand out above anything else two lines that sum up why he won the Giro d'Italia the first is when he points out that winning really comes down to a mental game when it gets to that point in the race it's really I would say everyone is pretty equal physically it's really like mentally at that point in the game. And the second is why he was able to win when it came to this point, saying... I mean, I think I think the, the belief has always been there. Like, I've always... I think you have to. If you don't have that, like, self-confidence and that self-belief, then you'll never get it done. Maybe, like... Yeah, maybe I'm really, uh, I don't know, humble and whatever to everyone else, but in my own mind, like really arrogant you know I don't know when Jai was able to flick this switch when he first started to believe winning a Grand Tour was really possible but I'd bet it was well before stage 20 well before his second place in 2020 but on the back of years of work chipping away at a goal he set himself as a young rider in Perth a single focus and follow through of a dream that Jai built inside staying humble on the outside, but fierce on the inside. And this is definitely something that the top riders that I've worked with all possess. Sometimes there's a bit of bravado there, but as Cyrus says, to win, you've got to believe you can win. And that, for me, is what it really takes. I know this might seem too much for some people, but here's where I think the secret power comes from. It's rare to get a peek inside such unwavering belief. Only Jai's inner circle would get to see this side of him. And I will also note that Jai actually hasn't realised his dream of riding the Tour de France. But I can bet when he lines up, even in this era with so much depth, you can be sure that he's going to back himself because that's what it takes to win a Grand Tour. 
Jai Henley is a professional cyclist with Bora Handsgrower. Jai, thank you for joining us and giving us a glimpse of what it's like to win a grand tour. To hear Jai talk about doing the tour, cycling in Perth, listen to questions for Jai, plus some roasting from Cyrus and Jason, become a member of the Cycling Performance Club and get access to the full conversation on our members-only feed. Click the link in the show notes to go to our website or visit cyclingperformanceclub.com. And with that, thanks for listening.